Three picks today. That's a new record for me. <laughs> well, good morning. Glad that you're here with us. If you're here in person or if you're uh, joining us online, we're glad to have you. Uh, I got a question for you. I'm going to set the over under at this question at four, okay? So you can let me know if you went over or under this. Four plates of Thanksgiving food. Who went over? Who went under that? Now, I don't just mean on Thursday, because if you're like us, you know, you have Thanksgiving lunch on Thursday, and you might go ahead and have seconds, and then you come back and eat dinner on Thursday night. Well, you're not making dinner, so you have leftovers Thursday night, and then maybe again on Friday, because, you know, you're Black Friday shopping, or, you know, at least your wife is, so you don't have food when you get back there, so you have leftovers again, and then Saturday, you're just trying to get them out of the fridge so you can move on and get ready. So again... Number four, over, under, how many did you have? How about this? Put the number four over, under on pieces of pumpkin pie. You go over, under that. There's no judgment here. It's okay. You can, you can think about that for just a few minutes. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving uh, week. Uh, we got a chance to go down to our family in Oklahoma and spend a few days there. <clears throat> had uh, you know the meal Thursday, got to spend time with parents, let our kids play with the cousins and grandparents, and... I came back home yesterday afternoon just in time to have my entire weekend ruined. Um, so uh, it, it's good. You know, I, I say this, one of these days, one of these days I'll grow up and I'll realize it's just a sport, it's just a game, it doesn't really matter. Yesterday was not that day, okay? Uh, if you don't know what I'm referring to, you can go home and Google it and figure it out, okay? You can just, just look up the scores. Uh, I got a question for you as we get ready to start this morning. And I'm curious, um, I'm going to give you, I'll just, I'll just be honest with you here. I'm going to give you some trigger warnings here. And I want you to think. I don't want you to say anything out loud. Don't say anything to your neighbor. I want you to think, what's the first reaction that pops in your head when I say some of these following things? Okay, just, just the first reaction that pops in your head, good, bad, or whatever it may be that pops in your head. When I say, President Biden. I can see your faces. You don't have to say anything, okay? <laughs> or if I say President Trump. Or if I say Kyle Rittenhouse and the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Or maybe if I say uh, universal health care. You know, what's the first thing that pops in your head? If I say uh, a border wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. Or maybe if I say vaccine mandates. What's the first thing that pops in your head when you hear those things? Now, I'm just willing to bet on almost all of those, for almost all of you, the reaction was not, yeah, I don't really care about that, whatever. I'm willing to bet the reaction on most of those, for most of you, was either a hard yes or a hard no. It was pushed one side to the other. And the reason I say that is because we seem like we live in a world right now that pushes us one side or the other. Like the media kind of helps fuel that, culture kind of helps fuel that, society helps fuel that a little bit. And, and, and what it's done, it's pushed us one side to the other to the point where our world in my lifetime is as divided as I can ever remember it being. I'll be 40 this next summer, and I don't remember our world ever facing the type of division that we do now. Maybe some of you who are older, you, you can point to a time when you think it was, but for me, 
Man, this is about as much as it has been, and I don't see it getting better anytime worse because it's like when one side pushes, the other side takes a bit of a step back and then pushes more, and we just continue to get further and further away from commonality further and further away from a central unifying force. And when I see that, it breaks my heart. Because I, I realize that what happens is we develop this mindset and this attitude that says, if you're not for me, if you're not with me, if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. And you're, you're on the other side. And we start these absolutes. And absolutes are divisive by their very nature. And again, it just feels like everything in our world and culture fuels and feeds this division more and more. And I want us to, to think about something today when it comes to this. Because when we look at a broken and divided world that may not be getting closer to, to, together anytime soon, I want us to remember a certain truth. A divided world needs a united church. It needs a united church standing firm on the word of God and shining the light of Jesus. And here's why I say that. I honestly believe this. The church is the hope of the world. I believe that. Over this last decade of my life, as I started moving into ministry and, and, and telling God, whatever you want from me, I'm here. Wherever you want me to go, whatever role you want me to have, however you want, I just want to play a part in leading your church some way, somehow. Because I believe this so much. I grew up in the church. I'll just kind of set this up. I, I spent almost every Sunday of my life in the church. Some way, shape, or form, I was involved. And I've always believed that the church is the hope of the world and the hope for the world. And because of that, I want to see the church together as we, we go through this, this life. Because here's the truth. A divided church is an ineffective church. You think about this. If, if we're not working together, we're not going to be effective. We're not going to be accomplishing our mission. Maybe, maybe you've heard the phrase, the sum is greater than the whole, or the, sorry, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. In other words, we may all be great individually, but we can be better together. You, you've seen this if you watch sports. You see this. A team has better athletes, but they may not win the game. They may not be a better team because the other team plays as one. And, and so a divided church is an ineffective church. And on the flip side of that, if we say the church is the hope of the world, we need to remember this truth as well, too. The church is only as strong as it is united. That's kind of what I want to unpack a little bit is that, that idea that the church is only as strong as it is united. If you've got a Bible, you can turn. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen. Uh, if you've got a device, a Bible, whatever you want to turn to. But 1 Corinthians, just to set this up as you're getting there, 1 Corinthians was one of the letters written by the Apostle Paul. And it was written to a church that he had started 20 some odd years earlier. And this church already is facing division. On just like its second generation of people, it's on the verge of falling apart. And so the whole letter of 1 Corinthians is addressing division. It's, it's addressing unity. It's bringing the church back together as one. And I want you to see how Paul starts this letter off. Because when Paul starts a letter, if you're not familiar with it, the first verse or two, it's just him introducing himself. And then the next, like maybe three to five, six verses are him giving a thanksgiving to the people he's writing for. I thank, I thank God for you for this. And then he jumps right into his main point. And here's his first point he makes, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. 
Notice what Paul does almost immediately. He invokes the name of Jesus. Right off the bat, I appeal to you, not just the name of Jesus, but the authority of Jesus. He wants to be very clear right off the bat, the church should be focused on Jesus first and foremost. We'll get to that more here in just a moment because Paul's going to unpack that more here in just a moment. But he goes on in verse 11. He says, For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I only follow Christ. So here's kind of the breakdown here. Again, Paul started this church. Paul founded this church. And then after he left, they brought in this guy named Apollos. You may have read about Apollos if you read through the New Testament. He's mentioned a few times, kind of a colleague of Paul's. And from all we know about Apollos, he was very wise. He was a solid teacher of the word and of the gospel. And then after that, there's a man named Peter. That's the apostle Peter, the one who walked on water, the one who was right there with Jesus, the one who was the rock on which the church was going to be started, Jesus said. And we see these names, and, and what's happening in this church is they're starting to get split on these different people. Some of them are thinking, you know, well, Paul used to do things this way. Paul, Paul ran the church well. Or, or, you know, I really liked how Apollos uh, did outreach programs into the community. Or, man, Peter was such a great preacher. It's like we're clinging to the different people in their past and what they brought to the table. And then there's some that, that Paul says are just saying, well, I follow Jesus. And it, it's easy to look at those and think, well, they're just the ultra-spiritual ones. Like they don't need, they don't need a, a, a specific pastor. Well, that's not really who that's referring to. Those are the types of people who say, you know, I've got my Bible and, and uh, I, I pray and, and I still study about Jesus on my own. I don't really need the church. That's kind of who he's referring to there. And that's good to pray and to, to study Jesus on your own and to read your Bible on a regular basis, but my Bible never says anything about you don't need to come to church. You don't need to be a part of one. But that's kind of the people that Paul's addressing there. Isn't it funny that this type of thing only happened in the Bible times and we never have to deal with it today? Squabbles over personalities and pastors. No, 2,000 years later, we still, we still face those same extremes. We have people that are so attached to people, to pastors, to leaders, to personalities, and we have some who say, I don't need that. I, I can watch church online every so often. I don't need to be there. And I can study. In fact, I, there's so much good stuff on there. I can listen to any pastor in America now, which is true, you can. But we get this mindset, and, and again, the Bible makes it very clear. If you call yourself a Christian, church and being engaged in church and being a follower and being a part of the fellowship is, is vital and it's important. But yet they're squabbling over the way people did things. Look how Paul addresses this division. Specifically, I like how Paul doesn't address this division because Paul doesn't get defensive here. Like, like he could have been, you know, you're having these arguments, but don't remember or don't forget, I'm, I'm Paul. I started this church all those years ago. I had this church running, you know, 1,500 people, and, and we had an amazing VBS, and we had an amazing missions program, and we had an amazing uh, outreach in the community, and, and man, we were, we were packed every Sunday. He doesn't say any of those things. Paul doesn't do any of that. He doesn't slam his fist down and say, listen to me, I know what I'm talking about. Instead, Paul points them to a very simple truth. That church unity erodes the moment we focus on anyone or anything 
other than Jesus. That church unity starts to crumble when we make it more about people than about Jesus. Maybe you uh, are aware of this. If you're not, uh, I'll just kind of update you on this. But we here at Crossroads are in the middle of a pastoral transition. Brad announced this several months ago and, and uh, made another announcement. And, and um, we're, we're in the middle of this transition. Sometime last year, uh, the, Brad and the leadership came to the conclusion that it was time to start looking uh, for the next leader of the church here. And it's been about 27 plus years ago that Brad and, and Colette and a group of people, some of you all maybe, started Crossroads Christian Church. And over that last quarter century plus, you have uh, followed God and followed the Spirit and laid the foundation of an incredible church that has made an impact in this area. But starting again last year, they started the process of, of saying, I think it's time, Brad said, to, to step aside and to, to let the next person come in. And so it was actually about a year ago this week, I had my very first conversation with Brad and the elders. And I sat on the other side of a Zoom call, on the other side of the country, talking to Brad and to Brad Fogo and to Bob and to Chris and to Gary and, and getting to, to know them a little bit and starting this exploration to think, is this next person that they are looking for, is that going to be me or is that going to be somebody else? And we had additional conversations and one thing led to another and, and, and here I am today. And I'm grateful that God's brought us on this path. And, and let me just kind of say this too in regards to this transition. We don't have a set timeline on this. People keep asking, well, when's this going to happen? Or, or, or when, when are we going to do this? Or, or how quick is it going to happen? We don't have a set timeline. We just know sometime in the coming months, whether that's sometime this year or, or what, this upcoming year I mean, uh, at some point, Brad and I will just continue to, to transition. I'll become more of the primary teaching pastor, eventually become the senior pastor. Brad will become the pastoral care pastor, and I'll take on a leadership role in the staff, and, and, and those things are, are going to happen at some point. We are following the Spirit's leading on that. And, and I can tell you this, Brad and I, we're both comfortable with that. We don't have to have hard set uh, deadlines and timelines. I know some of you want those, but, but we're following the leading of the Spirit. And just know, those of you who, who have asked, Brad's not retiring, he's not leaving. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, somebody paid me to say that, by the way. I won't say which elder paid me to say that, but one of them did. So, But he's going to continue to be here and, and be very active and be a part of your lives. And, and we look at this and, and we're comfortable with this. Because we see what happened in this Corinthian church. And I've seen what happened in the Corinthian church happen in many other churches today still too. And we want to make things very clear that throughout this entire process, we will remain focused first and foremost on Jesus. Because look what happens when it doesn't. Look, look what Paul said to the, the Corinthian church. Look at verse 13. Of 1 Corinthians 1, he asked him, he says, has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. And then he goes on to say, in fact, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. I'm glad I didn't do that. You, you, you can do it to each other because I don't want you baptized in my name. Paul focuses them on Jesus. I want to say this, and I hope you hear my, my sincerity in this because I'm not trying to, to brag on myself, I think highly of pastors 
You're like, well, you should, but I do. I, I think that pastors work hard to, to bring you the word of God. We work hard to be a part of your lives. We work hard to, to keep you focused on Jesus and to care for you and to, 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 to lead you in the right direction. But folks, it's not about us at all. And I, I want to remind you of this. You probably know this, but I want to remind you of this anyways. Pastors and personalities cannot save you. Okay, it doesn't matter how well I preach or how well I care for you or how well Brad has preached or will preach or he, how he continues to care for you. We cannot save you. Only Jesus can do that. So no matter what you think of me or of him, the only true hope in the world is Jesus. And it's, it's our first and foremost, utmost responsibility to keep you as a church focused on him. So keep our eyes towards him. See, here's the thing. It's so easy for us to get caught up in our own personalized versions of what the church is and should be. And, and, and I understand why this happens. If you've been a part of this church for any length of time or any church for any length of time, you understand something. The church matters to you. It means something to you. There are many of you who are here every Sunday, and you're here every prime time, and you're here every time there's something to do. This church is almost like a family member to you. Maybe, it's, maybe it means more to you than some of your family members. This church matters. And, and when it matters to you, you become passionate about it. You love it. And as such, you can get defensive and protective, just like you would a child. You can get defensive of some new guy coming in here. You can get defensive of an outsider or, or of somebody trying to change things up. We have strong opinions of how things should be done in the church. And I just want to tell you, I get it. Because I was a member of a church far longer than I've been a pastor. And I don't know how many times I, I look back at, at churches I was a part of and previous pastors and I think, man, I didn't agree with what that guy was doing. Man, I, I didn't like how he did this or how he did Why didn't he ask my opinion on that? I know what I'm talking about. And I, I get in ministry, I'm like, I know exactly why he didn't ask my opinion on that. I, I, I get it. I understand that the church matters. It means something to all of us. But we have to remember, and this goes for me too, and for Brad too, and for the elders and all the staff as well too, our personal opinions and our personal thoughts have to take a backseat to the mission of the church. It has to. I don't know how many times in my, my last church I had the complete authority to, to do what I wanted to do. And many times I, I had to say, I don't think I should though. Because I don't think this is the best thing for the mission. Even though I really want to, I, I don't think it's the best thing. And I had to take a step back on that myself. Unfortunately, I've seen too many churches that can't figure this out. I've seen churches that fall apart, churches that will almost cease to exist. And I've read reports of what ultimately pushes churches to their breaking point, what ultimately divides the churches. I mean, the list, it's almost comical. Like, like can anybody guess? Just, you can shout an answer out. What's the number one issue that causes most churches to divide? Any guesses? Heard it over here. Money. Same thing that causes most marriages to fail. It's money. How's the money spent? Why is the money spent this way? Where'd all the money go? It's, that's the issue that drives most churches to falling apart. Also in the top five, I heard it over here, is music. Music's too loud. Music's not loud enough. It's too upbeat. It's not upbeat enough. 
I, my, my last church, I had two people back-to-back -back come up to me and say, I wish we'd play more upbeat stuff. The next person says, I wish we'd play more hymns. I'm like, so which of you two am I going to make mad? You guys pick. You guys bare-knuckle box, and I'll take the winner, okay? Like, like that, that's, that is. It's, it's music style. It's volume. It's song choice. Uh, another one is, is the types and number of ministry programs that the church has to offer. Maybe you've heard somebody say, well, what does that church have to offer me? Maybe you've heard that. The, the next two of the top five are almost embarrassing to admit. But another dividing point for people in churches is the dress code for staff. Like, what's the preacher going to be dressed in? Is he going to be wearing, uh, you know, maybe not a suit and tie, we're not that uppity, but we at least think he should be wearing a, maybe a blazer and some nice pressed pants. Or is it, hey, your preacher just picked out which pair of pants he had cleaned this morning and which were the least wrinkled. If that's you, you're in good hands moving forward. <laughs> like if you fall into that category. Uh, and then the last one, interior decoration. What does the church look like on the inside? How is it decorated? That's a dividing point for churches. I really wish I was making that up. But that's a big deal. It's a big deal. In fact, the vast majority of disagreements in the church, the vast majority, are, are issues that we would say have zero to do with doctrine or interpretation of Scripture. They're just personal preference. And I don't want to make light because those things do matter to us. They mean something to us. If you've ever gone in somebody's house and their house is extremely well decorated, then it might make sense why they think that, that the church should be decorated a certain way. It, it, things can make sense. The problem is we take these, these topics that shouldn't be divisive and we decide that those are hills we want to die on, that those are hills that we want to conquer. And we lose sight of what's the most important thing. And we argue about things that we shouldn't argue about. And we make those too big of, a, of an issue. Listen, church, I want to I be clear with you on this. For us to have unity, for us to be unified, it does not mean that we have to talk the same and look the same and dress the same and that we have to vote the same and that we have to do everything the same. In fact, I'd say this, unity does not equal uniformity. I don't want a church of everybody who looks just like me and talks just like me and acts just like me. I have one of those in my house, and it drives me crazy. I don't want several hundred just like me. Unity does not equal uniformity. In fact, I think the church should be a model for diversity. We should have all different types of people here. That's what makes it so beautiful. That's what heaven's going to be like one of these days. But when it comes to unity, I like to define it this way. Unity is not that we're all the same. Unity is the intentional drive to come together in spite of our disagreements, in spite of our differences, in spite of what might push us apart. Unity is coming together in spite of all that. That's how Paul kind of took it. In Ephesians, he's writing to the church and trying to tell them what it means to live in the kingdom as one, what it means to live together with people who might be a little different than you. Here's what he says, chapter 4 of Ephesians, starting in verse 2. He says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. 
Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, for there is one body and one Spirit, just as as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and through all. You think he's trying to make a point here. In two verses, he says the word one seven times. He's trying to emphasize that God was not divided for us for our individual desires. Look, I get it. God wired us all differently, and I'm glad that he did. I'm glad not everybody's wired like I'm wired. He designed us and created us all uniquely. We all have different passions that he gave us, and those passions often will tell us what we're going to become passionate about. They're going to tell us and push us to what we want to do and what we want to see done and what we want to accomplish. They're going to push us in a certain and specific direction. Here's our problem is that too often, especially here in our current culture in this country, those passions push us to hills we're willing to die on that we shouldn't, and we, we create enemies because of it. Church, we need to understand we have forgotten who the enemy is. We have forgotten who the enemy is. We think the enemy is another person or another political party or another group of people, and the enemy is none of those. The Bible is very clear who our enemy is. In fact, the Bible gives our enemy a name. 1 Peter chapter 5, it tells us to stay alert and watch out for your great enemy, the devil. It says he walks around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Do something real quick. Look to your left and to your right. Look behind you. Look all around you. Those people you looked at, they're not your enemy. The people that you're going to bump into at, uh, you know, at a restaurant later today, they're not your enemy. People you're going to see at the store this week or your neighbors or people at your kids' schools, Broncos fans, they're not your enemies. Okay, none of them are your enemies. We have an enemy. And Jesus, when he told us to love your neighbors, he didn't say love some of your neighbors. He said love your neighbor. There's no asterisk on that. There's no conditions. There's no footnotes to that. Love your neighbor as yourself, period. He was very clear about that. We are called to love all God's people. And love helps lead to unity. But folks, unity does not mean that we have to agree on every topic and on every approach. But it does mean that we share a singular focus in spite of those differences and those disagreements. Here's another way to say it. This is a phrase the Christian church was founded upon centuries ago. This phrase here, it says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. What do I mean by that? Well, in essentials, unity. What are the essentials? That's what we at, at this church call our core beliefs. Those are our beliefs that we will not waver on. Before the church actually started, before they had their first meeting, Brad sat down with his Bible and and wrote out what he felt was the core belief of this church. And there's a list of these. And I've seen these, and I can tell you, that's not going to change. That core belief list will stay the same. It's things like we believe that God is the creator of the world and all things. That Jesus is the son of God. That Jesus died on the cross, that he rose from the grave. That, That it's only through his grace by faith that we're saved. Uh, that the Bible is the infallible, living, breathing word of God, etc. There's more. That's not the whole list. But but that's an example of what we would call an essential belief. We will not waver on those. But non-essentials, liberty, what's that mean? 
That means the things that we like to believe in, the things that we're going to cling to, that may be good things to believe in. They're theological things, but they're not necessarily salvational. Like, well, how's, how's the end times going to happen? We have a rapture. We're going to have this millennium. Like, how, how's that going to work out? It's things the Bible aren't clear cut on. Things that aren't worth arguing about, but some people will, again, pick those as hills to die on. Or maybe it's things like what translation of the Bible should we preach from or read from or study from or, or uh, should a Christian go watch a rated R movie or, or it's, I mean, things like that. Things, again, that we will argue about or fight about, but they have nothing to do with your salvation. Those are non-essentials. And the problem is sometimes we don't know which is which. That's too often the case with Christians is we take something that's a non-essential and we make it essential. Again, what's on our core belief list, that is our essentials. That's what we're going to say we will be unified at this church on. Everything else falls there. We can have liberty, but in all things love. And that's ultimately what what we need to focus on when it comes to those non-essentials. If we want to argue about those non-essentials, well, at least remember, in all things love. Jesus, just before he was crucified, before he was about to be arrested in the garden, He told his disciples this last command in John 15. He said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Folks, it is not our job to judge the world. It is not our job to judge each other. It's not our job to point out the differences in one another. It is our job to love each other and to love the world and to point the world towards Jesus, to shine his light into our world everywhere that we go and to come together as one to shine that light as bright as we possibly can. Jesus, as he's being led to the slaughter, tells us to love one another. He didn't tell us to go fight. He didn't say, hey, fight till your knuckles bleed. Fight for me. He didn't say, hey, get on Facebook and make sure you've got the loudest opinion out there. This is love. Why? He knows we don't need to fight. God's got that taken care of already. He tells us to love each other. I know that there might be some anxious moments in the coming months. I know for some of you there have been anxious moments and and difficult moments in the past several months. I know when Brad made his announcement back in April and made it again in May that there were some difficult moments. In fact, there one one, uh, one of you in particular, I won't point out and say who, but one of you came up to me a few weeks ago and goes, just so you know, I didn't even like you before I even knew who you were. <laughs> Brad told me later he paid her $100 to say that. But, um, but I understood what she was saying. I understood what she was saying. We've had an amazing pastor here for 27 years. And just the thought of somebody new, I don't want any part of that. That's what... That's what was, was going through the mind. And then followed it up a minute later, she said, but I'm starting to like you now. I said, well, that's progress. We're getting there. <laughs> Give me 27 years. Maybe you'll like me. But I get that. There can be some anxious moments. And when, for some of you, maybe the only pastor you've ever known says, well, I'm not going to be the, the lead pastor of the church anymore, it can feel like you just lost a family member. Now, again, Brad's not going anywhere. But I can tell you this, from the moment we have gotten here, back in June, these these last five to six months, we've felt nothing but love from you all and felt welcomed by you all. And man, it's just for me complete confirmation 
that God's got his hand on all of this. And that he's going to continue to have his hand in all of this. And I want to be clear about something too. Because there's one thing that will not change in this church. Whether the senior pastor of this church is Brad Fangman or Kurt Witten or somebody else, the leader of this church is not changing. Because the leader of this church isn't Brad and it's not me. The leader of this church is and always will be Jesus. And that's not going to change on my watch. That's not going to change as long as I am here. And that leader gave us very clear missions that take priority for me over anything I want to see and, and do. He gave us very clear missions. The night after Jesus resurrected from the dead, he showed up in the upper room to his disciples. And he gave them a very clear instruction. He said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And you look back through the Gospels three times, Jesus said why he was sent. He said that I came, or the Son of Man came, three times he said to give life and give it to the full, to serve others, not to be served, and to seek and save the lost. And we need to keep those in mind, church. And then a few weeks later, just before he goes back to heaven and ascends back, he gives one final command that, that most of us know pretty well. One final commission statement. When he said, go into the world and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So church, our mission, it's simple. We go in the world and we make disciples. We bring life, a full life to other people. We serve others. We seek and save the lost. If it's not something that helps accomplish one of those parts of the mission, it's not worth squabbling about. It's not worth fighting about. Because that is what we're called to do. And we can't do that individually. To do that, we need to be one. Church, unity to the church is vital. Without unity, we are doomed. Now the church, the big C church, the whole church, the worldwide church of Jesus, that's going to endure. That is going to grow because that's God's church. So our question is, do we want to continue to be a part of that? Now, I just want to say this too. Nothing about my time here has made me fearful that this church is not unified. But it's worth remembering. It's worth the reminder to keep our eyes focused on him. Because I want this church to be about one thing and one thing only. And that's Jesus. It's Jesus. So let me ask you another question that I want you to think about and you to kind of ponder your own answer here. What's one thing for you that could potentially, maybe it is, or maybe it could potentially be a potential roadblock to church unity? What's one hill for you that you say, I, yeah, that's a hill I could die on, that if you're being very honest with yourself, you could say, maybe I shouldn't though? Is it culture? Is it politics? Is it non-essential theology? Is it a pastor or personality? What is it? I want you to just think about that and chew on that because here's the problem that, that too often we have at times like this. Too often we hear something about church unity or, or we'll hear something along these lines and, and we have this type of response that I got when I preached this sermon once before. I had somebody in my church came up to me and say, boy, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. I thought, are you sure it was so-and-so that needed to hear that? <laughs> no, 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 I, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine. Are you, though? Because too often we want the other person to hear that message so they can change something and become a little bit more like us and agree with us a little bit more. 
So what is it for you? Because as I read more and more about Jesus, and as I see more and more about Jesus, I understand what he wanted out of and for his church. Man, I'm just drawn to this idea that we need to be together as one. One of the final prayers that Jesus prayed, John 17, and it's a prayer that's so deep and rich. And one of my professors used to say, I shouldn't even be allowed to read this prayer because this is God praying to God. This is father or son praying to the Father. And in the midst of this prayer, as he is about to be arrested and go to the cross and endure the worst suffering that the human hands have ever come up with, he prayed this. He's praying about specifically the church here, his apostles. He says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That's through the message of the church. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And folks, if this very prayer of Jesus was that we be one, who am I? Who am I to make that any less than a high priority? The church needs to be united. So here's the takeaway question, and it's a simple one. kind of goes along with what I just asked you. What is something that you need to de-emphasize to help the church be more unified? What's something to you that, that you would say, man, this is a passion for me? This is something that I really want, but at the end of the day, maybe it's not that big of a deal. What's one thing that you need to de-emphasize so the church can be more unified? We're going to step into our time of communion. And as we do this, anytime I think about unity, I can't think about communion without breaking that word in two pieces. And seeing that the last half of that word is the word union. One. And, and I, I like to think about this because communion is the one unifying thing across churches everywhere. Whatever the church may be, whatever their sign may say, whatever doctrine that they have that might be a little different than us, if they take communion together as one, we are taking the body and the blood of Jesus. And so you've got those packets. If you don't have them, there's some around the tables. You can get them at this time. But as we take communion, we're reminded that Jesus went to the cross for all of us and that he went to the cross to reconcile us to God, to bring us back into un unity and union with God. And so as we take this piece of bread that represents his body and this cup of juice that represents his blood that were broken and shed on the cross for us, we do this with Christians around the world. One body, one father, one son. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus and that his death on the cross reconciles us to you. But God, it reconciles us to each other. And so God, in these next few moments, I just pray that you would allow us to leave anything that might cause division to the side. And God, we would just be with you. And that our priority would always be you and your church. Father, we are so thankful, so thankful for Jesus. We pray today in his name.